The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jake Werner. We spoke about the explosive situation in Hong Kong and the ideological makeup of the protest movement. We also talked about the global nationalist turn and how China and Hong Kong fit into that dynamic, as well as the increasing possibility of armed conflict between China and the United States. You can find links to some of the articles Jake has written on these topics and that we discussed during the show in the episode description. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats by Maya Goodfellow. For years now, immigrants have been blamed for almost all of the UK's social ills. This narrative has justified deaths at borders, violence in detention centres and the tearing apart of families. When and why did the UK begin to develop its restrictive and demonising immigration policies? In Hostile Environment, Maya Goodfellow argues that the roots of this anti-immigrant culture are global and colonial and sets out an alternative future based on stories of solidarity and resistance. Visit versobooks.com for more information. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Jake Werner is a historian of modern China with research interests in labour, nationalism, mass society and the trajectory of global capitalism over the last century. He's currently teaching in the Graham School at the University of Chicago, and his essays have been published in Foreign Policy, Made in China, and The Nation. So I thought we could start by maybe chatting a little bit about the competing political tendencies within the protest movement in Hong Kong. In many ways, the comparisons that are made with the 1989 protest movement that obviously culminated in the Tiananmen Square massacre are pretty inaccurate. But one thing that does seem to characterise both movements is their quite multifarious nature. There are, you know, sort of left wing and and, and liberal, but also reactionary right wing elements to the movement as well. And that contrasts pretty sharply with the standard media portrayal in which we largely see this sort of straightforward confrontation between liberal pro-democracy protesters and this increasingly authoritarian regime in Beijing, which, you know, I'm sure neither of us would want to dispute the latter point, and also its its local proxies in in Hong Kong. So how would you want to uh, characterise the movement? 
I mean, I think that's right, that there is just a wide range of thought on politics that all kind of coalesces around a single target, which is the Hong Kong government and then Beijing behind it. But I think, you know, and this is this is not something that I have done a detailed investigation on, so I don't want to draw any sort of solid conclusions on this. But my impression, at least, is that for the most part, most of the protesters don't have a very well-formed kind of political analysis or sense of how all of these things are connected. And it's more just a sense of it's kind of like boiling frustration hmm. at the fact that they've, they feel they've lost the ability to have a say in their lives. And I think that's right, even if the analysis that could really address the problems isn't there for a lot of people. Nonetheless, I think that's right. And it's, and it's a sort of, although the target really is the Hong Kong government and the Communist Party leadership in Beijing, the sense of frustration is much more wide-ranging. It has mm. to do with a sense of loss of sort of what it is that makes Hong Kong unique, with that being under threat, a loss of the ability to define one's own life, whether that is in terms of career or in terms of political expression. I think that is common across all these different political orientations. And I mean, in terms of the Hong Kong government, I mean, is it right to see it as it as little more than a, a proxy of the regime in Beijing? Or is, it, um, is, there, is there a sector of the Hong Kong elite that takes a more localist perspective and would like to defend Hong Kong's autonomy to a, to a greater extent? The Hong Kong elite is a little bit conflicted on this because they see the possibility of a threat from Beijing. And interestingly, the issue that set off this round of massive protests was the proposed extradition bill, which would have not only opened up the possibility of extraditing Hong Kong citizens for engaging in political speech that was barred on the mainland, it also really opened up the possibility of extraditing Hong Kong tycoons who had engaged in corruption. And so the at least the initial parts of the movement, there really was a kind of united front at all amongst all classes, amongst all levels of society against the extradition bill. And so at least part of the elite felt very nervous about that because mm. they have all engaged in business on the mainland. And certainly in the past, if you wanted to engage on business in the mainland, you were engaged in corruption, like just leaving aside corruption in Hong Kong. Mm. And so that made them vulnerable to the extradition bill, and they were quite concerned about it. So there, there is this sense that the economic elite in Hong Kong could be threatened if the kind of control that Beijing exerts over Hong Kong increases, that that could be a threat to them. But in general, I think the way that the political system works in Hong Kong, it's essentially an oligarchy, or it's a bureaucracy that works on behalf of the economic elite. Hmm. Uh, and that is the deal that Beijing made upon the handover in 1997. Uh, and it has been carried out pretty consistently. And this is this is one of the things that is firing the frustration amongst the protesters is that the ability to do anything about the inequalities and the exploitation in Hong Kong itself is rendered impossible by the way the political structure works. And the political structure is being upheld by Beijing. So Beijing ends up being the target, even if the kind of immediate complaints have to do with life in Hong Kong. 
In terms of the economic situation in Hong Kong, I mean, could you say something about the, the situation in terms of the cost of living, the degree of inequality and increasing precarity that, that characterizes the Chinese economy, the Hong Kong economy? I mean, You know, people will always say it's one of the most unequal places in the world. In a sense, that's sort of a, a misleading statistical artifact because the measurement that will be used here is, is probably a Gini coefficient. And... Uh, the Gini coefficient in Hong Kong as a city should not be compared to the Gini coefficient inside the United States as a country. Hmm. But it is one of these global financial centers. Global financial centers always have extremely high levels of inequality. So it's similar to, to New York or London in the, in the hmm. degree of, of economic inequality. But it is in some ways even more extreme than that. People make do on, you know, aside from the financial elite, uh, people make do on very low salaries. The minimum wage is extremely low. The cost of housing is extremely high. It's even higher than places like New York or London. And as a result, more and more people are getting crammed into these sort of coffin-sized apartments. And then the background for this is that the, the possibilities for social mobility are really attenuating, as, you know, as we would sort of expect in a winner-take-all society. You concentrate all the opportunity at the top, that means more and more people are struggling ever more for fewer and fewer opportunities. It's not necessarily that these things have changed really radically, but the economy has become less dynamic, and that has led to increasing competition. The population as a whole has become more educated, which means that more people are qualified to compete for the, for the small number of well-paying jobs. So there's both a, a sense of intensifying competition and a sort of a feeling that people are stuck, that the new opportunities are not opening up. So this has all sort of generated in, in over the last 10 years an increasing sense that this is all illegitimate. Hmm. Whereas previously, it was a winner-take-all society 10 years ago and 20 years ago as well. But there was a sense that it was legitimate and that you could succeed if you competed and those who lost would sort of blame themselves. Now there's been a loss of legitimacy of the whole structure. Not, it's not the critique is not necessarily getting at the specificity of the problem, in, in my own opinion, often. But nonetheless, that sense of the legitimacy of Hong Kong society has really crumbled. And a lot of that then gets focused on the Hong Kong government and the authorities in Beijing. What's the relationship between the current crisis and the Occupy Central movement of, of 2014? And, and could you perhaps also say something about the Chinese government's response to that movement? Right. So Occupy Central in 2014 was in response to a new set of regulations about how elections would be run in Hong Kong that were issued by the, by the Beijing government. And the kinds of qualification standards that were imposed by Beijing made it clear that there would not be open elections for the chief executive position of Hong Kong. And so that's what set off Occupy Central. And it wasn't just the central neighborhood. It ended up being a number of occupations across the city. So maybe just to draw the contrast with what's going on in uh, this year, these were occupations, so they were they were not mobile, um, they were long-term occupations, and there emerged a set of identifiable leaders associated with them who were spokesmen for the protest movements, and they gained 
the kind of support of these sort of long-term existing democratic politicians, as well as produced a set of new young leaders. Eventually, the occupations in 2014 lasted for a number of months. Eventually, they sort of dwindled, and then the, and then the government cleared them out. And in the years afterwards, a lot of those people who had served as leaders of the occupations were arrested and punished in various ways. So one of the clear contrasts this year has been the complete absence of any leaders in the movement. Another clear contrast is that these protests are highly mobile. They do not occupy space. They move around the city and they pop up in different places. And the tactics of the protests are also around mobility, sort of thrusting at the... Obviously, there's a distinction to be drawn here between very large marches and then more confrontational and militant attacks on the police and like uh, vandalizing the metro stations and vandalizing businesses associated with mainland companies or with with Hong Kong owners who have criticized the protest. So there's a range of different ways that people have engaged in the protest, but regardless, these are mobile in a way that was not the case in uh, 2014. In terms of the more reactionary wing of the of the protest movement, I mean, would I be right in thinking that you you kind of have there were sort of three targets that they have in mind in terms of identifying actors who are causing their economic problems and also also the the political clampdown, and that would be the Chinese government, the Hong Kong political class and, and associated elites, but also ethnic Chinese living in in Hong Kong who are seen as uh, as outsiders. It's hard to judge this, and I think that for the most part, these political orientations, uh, aside from a relatively small number of people, have not crystallized into clear ideologies. So I think for most people, these things are, all three of those things are sort of wrapped up in ways that are more or less conscious. And the, the argument that I made in the piece is that this is what makes the protests so focused, even though the the protests in Hong Kong bear a lot of similarities with populist uprisings that we've seen around the world over the last particularly five, six years, going back to Occupy though, really. So since uh, shortly after the financial crisis, we've seen these around the world. But in Hong Kong, unlike other places, the Communist Party leadership provides a focus for all of these things, like all of this sort of complaints and the feeling of insecurity and pressure and loss of control that is felt in Hong Kong can all be associated with, ultimately, with the mainland presence in China. So not necessarily the Chinese government, but the, exist the existence of the mainland and its sort of coming in, surrounding, occupying, pressuring the life of the city. And so that applies to it applies to the kinds of political restrictions that the the communist party leadership would like to impose in hong kong it applies to private businessmen from the mainland who are speculating on chinese or on hong kong property and helping to drive up the cost of living it applies to tourists from the mainland who engage in ways that hong kong people most hong kong people find rude or uh, the term is uncivilized and it applies to educated mainland people who move to Hong Kong and enter the competition for these 
this very restricted number of good paying and high status jobs. And so all of these things are sort of symbolically associated with the mainland. And it allows the protests to have a focus that often is missing in other places where there are structurally similar complaints about both about elites, the sense that elites have sort of taken your future away or taken your ability to control your life, uh, and those complaints that are, that are focused on people below who are competing with you or who are threatening to change the nature of local identity or something like this. Reading the piece, it made me think of a um, book I've just finished reading by Sivarmahan Valuvan, which is called The Clamour of Nationalism, which is really looking at nationalism in, in the UK. But one of the, the arguments that he makes is that it's really an error to think of the, the moment that we're living through as a, as a populist moment with the implication that we're in a situation that's just as conducive to a left populism as a reactionary right-wing populism, when in fact, if we look from Brazil to the United States, to the Philippines, to the government in China, we largely see reactionary nationalism winning victories or, or firmly in power, whereas the leftist political insurgency, such as it is, is yet to translate into electoral victories, really. Is that an analysis that you would share and that you would see the situation in Hong Kong as primarily a, a situation of competing nationalisms, a, a nationalism of, of the Chinese government and a, although perhaps nationalism isn't quite the w right word, but a sort of chauvinist localism in, in Hong Kong? Yes, yes, I think that's right. Um, and I think that that comes out of, and that general picture that we see around the world comes out of the fact that the kind of dominant ideology of neoliberal society was cosmopolitanism and global mobility and connectedness and, you know, mobility of people and capital and ideas, and that all of these things would sort of eclipse borders. So now, obviously, that in practice often was not the case, but that is kind of the, the dominant understanding of of what globalization was about and or at least where it was moving towards and as the as the legitimacy of neoliberalism has crumbled over the last decade i think the sort of immediate political response has often been just to directly negate its dominant features and what that leads to then is a situation in the hong kong mainland case is a particularly virulent version of this, but, but you see it all over the place, what that leads to is as people sort of hunker down around their local identities, then that brings them into conflict with other peoples or other countries that previously had a connection, a complementary connection with them. And so in the, in the case of Hong Kong and China, as, we, as we've been talking about, people in Hong Kong are experiencing a atrophying of, of life possibilities, uh, whether that's kind of political or economic or individual, and it's getting blamed concretely on the mainland. Uh, so even though this is coming out of a much deeper change in the structure of global society, the immediate appearance of the crisis is, and the, the immediate appearance of the source of the suffering is the mainland. Now, people in the mainland see that, and they see Hong Kong people reacting against the mainland. And Hong Kong then, from the mainland point of view, is assimilated into a larger structure of threat and constriction posed by liberal society in general. So sort of embodied, most importantly, by the United States. But the way that the Hong Kong protests are articulating 
themselves makes it very easy to group all of this together into a kind of global liberalism that is attempting to prevent China from developing. So again, this is coming, the, the sources of frustration and suffering on the mainland are, I would argue, are more deeply rooted in the breakdown of, of the neoliberal social regime. But the immediate appearance of the problems is connected to the United States and to liberal ideas. And so then Hong Kong is sort of like an internal threat to the nation because it embodies those things that are experienced as the source of the problem. And then those two nationalisms or localisms, they feed off of each other, right? And you, you see this very clearly in the escalation of the Hong Kong protests, that precisely because the Hong Kong protests pose themselves against the mainland, then the mainland poses itself against Hong Kong protesters, and each side sort of digs down deeper and deeper into its own identity, making it harder and harder to imagine any kind of resolution. And then that process of frustration drives the whole thing further. And the thing that really worries me is that it's, it's not just that the immediate conflicts can't be resolved, but that what will come out of this process is a deepening of nationalist consciousness that will then feed into global conflicts that are, I find, really sort of terrifying to contemplate. Do you see any, I mean, as we've discussed, I mean, there are various strands to the protest movement and there are, there is a, certainly a significant left-wing element as well. I mean, do you see a strand of the movement that seeks to overcome that situation and seeks to build alliances on, on both sides, within Hong Kong and outside and within China on a class basis rather than on this um, chauvinist uh, nationalism? I mean, yeah, there's no question that, that for many years, there have been a number of groups doing wonderful work, wonderful solidarity work based in Hong Kong, helping movements on the mainland side, uh, whether that's workers' movements or feminist movements or whatever. And, and, they, and they are quite active in the protests as well. So it's, the protests themselves have all different kinds of approaches to this, to this issue. But my, my own sense is that the left and the solidarity-oriented Parts of the protests are are really I don't want to say marginalized. It's more that the sense is that everyone is going to stay on board, everyone's going to stand united behind the protests, and the kinds of internal arguments about strategy and orientation are something that are just mostly neglected. So it's not that they, that that there's hostility to, to different approaches. It's rather that there's sort of, and you know, this is obviously part of, part of the dynamic here is just the intensity and urgency of the protests themselves. But it's, that's also making it difficult to kind of formulate a strategy about how the demands of the protests might actually be won. And that then feeds into a kind of nihilistic pessimism about the, about the future that, that drives a lot, of, a lot of behavior that might be unstrategic. So, but but yeah, there's no question that there are, there are a lot of people in Hong Kong that have that do now and have for many years worked in solidarity with with progressive currents in the mainland. Uh, but it's become increasingly difficult to do that because of under Xi Jinping, the Chinese government has really closed off a lot of space that had opened up over the previous decade, and the kinds of possibilities for doing 
for doing political work amongst workers or amongst you know the different problems in urban society or the possibilities of sort of articulating a critique of the government, all of these things are really a shadow of their former self, and that's made it really difficult for these solidarity organizations to continue the work that they were doing. On the increasing nationalism and authoritarianism of the Chinese government, as, as I'm sure you'll know, I mean, you know, going back to the, um, even to the pre-revolutionary era, the, the Chinese Communist Party was able to appeal to fears of, of foreign encroachment with reference to the treatment of China by the imperial powers in the 19th and early 20th century. Do you think that in the United States and in the West more broadly, there's, there's a general inattention to the ability of the uh, Chinese government to play on those fears and, and there's a, re- a lack of recognition of just the degree to which Western imperialism continues to be seen as a, as a threat in China. Yeah, I think that the way it shows up in the media, in at least in the US, it tends to have a kind of, it tends to polarize between a kind of ungrounded liberal optimism where all Chinese people are you know, just like us and want freedom and democracy. And it's just the tyrannical government that is preventing it on the one hand, or on the other hand, all Chinese people are brainwashed by the government and they hate freedom and democracy. And maybe they're the victims in this whole process, but nonetheless, there is no, there are no liberals in China. Mm. So I think that these, it's sort of, bounces back and forth between these two general views. Neither one is very realistic or very well-grounded in Chinese reality, in my own opinion. But in terms of your specific question about imperialism, about the, the role of the Western powers in the global system, yeah, that's there's just basically no appreciation of, of the perspective of China on these things. And when I look at the coverage of the trade war, for example... There are, there are a number of moves that the U.S. government has taken that I think any reasonable observer could easily interpret as an attempt to prevent China from developing. So, of course, of course, a great many people in China take that view. I think that's quite a realistic view. And some of this is quite explicit on the part of the Trump administration, that it's a danger to American companies that... China might enter these fields of high value production and therefore they must be stopped. And I mean, that's also a position that one sees within the the Democrats, right? And including on the left of the party. Yes, it's quite common. The rhetoric is around our technology. The Chinese are stealing our technology as if technology had a, a nationality and as if it ought to have had. And you're right, this is true from the centrists to the to the progressives in the Democratic Party. There's a lot of kind of uncritical acceptance of a basically neoliberal idea that intellectual property is sacred. And, and very little discussion, certainly no discussion of substance that might provide a vision for the possibilities for development for the poor countries of the world. China sees this and it, and it doesn't have any hard, hard time interpreting what's going on there. Essentially, the way this looks from the mainland, and I think that this is quite legitimate, is the rich countries got rich through conquering the rest of the world. And now that there is a country that is getting rich that doesn't want to accept their authority over the world, they want to prevent that from happening. Mm. 
So this is the sort of the kicking away the ladder thesis that you get from people like Hajun Chang, right? Right. Yes. So then you have other examples, Japan or South Korea. So it seems as if the West will accept new members of the club as long as they are firmly subordinate to the U.S. structure of authority in the world. Mm. And it's the, the problem with China seems to be its independence. I think that's, that is certainly how it looks from, from China, and I think there's a lot to that. And on that question of developmentalism, you describe what the economic course that China has, has charted as cheating, but cheating at a, at a rigged game. Could you explain what you mean by that? So this is an argument that I made in this, this piece in Foreign Policy that I published last year. And the idea there was that, um, so this is already in the middle of the trade war that has now been, been going on much longer, and it hasn't changed. The debate in the United States over the trade war never actually examines what might be motivating the Chinese side. It's always these sorts of polemical characterizations of the Chinese stealing our technology and the Chinese running a predatory trade regime and these sorts of things. So in the piece, I try to I try to think through. I do a very quick kind of overview of the course of Chinese development over the last 30, 40 years, and try to think about this from the perspective of China. And the the argument that I make is that the only way to develop under neoliberal conditions is to cheat at the rules that have been set by the multilateral international liberal order that the United States has put together. That if you if you want to break there's a there's a very sharp hierarchy in terms of what's called the value chain. If you want to develop, that is if you want to uh, gain access to high value production, which also means gaining access to high rates of capital accumulation as well as access to high paying jobs, which brings with it of course authority both socially and in the global system. If you want to do any of these things, then you have to break the the monopolies that the rich countries have over intellectual property and the ability to produce in tech and in advanced production in auto and steel and robotics and all of these different fields. And any anyone who is forced to obey the intellectual property regime that the United States has set up will never be able to do this. Mm. And so from the standpoint of China, you know, they can look at the other countries that have tried to develop over the last 30 years and, and no other country has, uh, has achieved a developmental breakthrough in the way that China has. Not to say that China is the only one who is cheating at the rules of the neoliberal global economy, but it has been able to most effectively sort of go around that set of rules because, because it has a unusually centralized state because it started out with an unusually well-developed infrastructure and educated workforce. These are, these are legacies of the, of the Mao period and the communist revolution. And because it had this, because its growth created an enormous domestic market that a lot of, uh, a lot of companies from the rich world wanted to get into. And so they were willing to give up their exclusive control over their intellectual property in order to get into the market. So the way that the the way that politicians in the United States will characterize this is this is China coercing our companies into handing over their technology and their intellectual property. 
But the way that I see this is that this is just, just a regular market exchange. And the side with greater bargaining power gets a better deal out of a market exchange. None of those companies were forced to enter the China market. They entered the China market because they wanted access to the consumers there, or they wanted access to the, to the cheap workforce there. And in exchange, the Chinese government, unlike the government of other countries, was able to exact a deal on the terms of their entry into the market that would support development rather than leave the country basically unchanged. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.